invite you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah. I'm going to spend a few moments this morning looking at Isaiah chapter 64. If you have a pew Bible there, you'll find this on page 623. To continue our series on revival, we'll read the first three verses of Isaiah 64. Oh, that you, God, would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, let's ready our hearts to to worship in his word, standing together to sing both I Need Thee Every Hour and Speak, O Lord. Let's stand together. Let's pray together. Father, what wonderful words to sing as we come to your word that we need you every hour and lord we we need you now to come and and speak oh lord would we hear from you as we reflect on on your word together and would words of life words of grace be ours we pray in jesus name amen please be seated So yesterday I pulled up a traffic light, I was going to turn left and the filter there was red and I saw that the lanes beside me had the green light to go but they were all just sitting in a line. So I kind of leaned over and turned to take a look and there was a young mum there in her minivan and the light was green but she wasn't aware of it. Any, any guesses why? She's looking at her phone, right? And I thought, she's going to get honked at right? It's DC, right? Um, However, a few seconds passed and and no honk came and sort of bemused that I turned and peered further back and there was a a middle-aged guy in a nice BMW convertible. Uh, The light was green. He wasn't honking. Why? He was also looking at his phone, right? I look back up and the light turns red, okay? An entire cycle Nobody even noticed, right? And I'm kind of sitting there musing to myself. I'm kind of like, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, like, I wonder what they were looking at. And I wonder where they're going. And, you know, people are intriguing. You know, you wonder what their, what their day holds. Uh, I wonder how much of our traffic problems are self-inflicted like this. And I'm kind of mid-thought when I hear a honk, because <laughs> my light to turn left has gone green, right? <laughs> and just how easy it is for us to miss those things that are are right in front of us. How easy it is to miss those things that are right in front of us. As a church, together we're doing a series on revival. We're taking an honest look at our own souls and an honest look at our church. And our goal together is, is to live life without pretending. We really want to live life without pretending. We don't just want to go through the motions. We don't want to just know the right Christian answers, somehow play this Christian game. We, we want to be alive to God, awake to him, animated by his grace toward us. 
In our series so far, we've seen three things. Week one, Pastor Robert led us in reflections upon what revival is. And we saw that revival shouldn't primarily be thought of as a season of intense evangelistic activity, as if you hire a big tent and and, and plan a revival. Nor should revival be primarily thought of as a time of unusual spiritual activity, a time of of miracles or, or healings. Rather, Robert showed us from the scriptures that revival is really rightly understood as an intensification of how God ordinarily works. An intensification of how God ordinarily works. In other words, when the gospel, which we hold so dear, moves from just being in our heads down into our hearts and grips us so that we really start to follow Jesus. That's how revival happens. The next week we reflected upon, well, well, why do we need revival? And we looked at that great passage in Revelation and saw how easy it is for us to be sleepy Christians. How easy it is for us to be a sleepy church and how tired we are of that. We don't want to say that our best spiritual days were were yesterday, were in the past. We want our best spiritual days to be today. And so having seen what revival is and, and why we need it, last week we considered together, well, how is it that revival begins? And we said it begins with the gospel, with gospel recovery, with grace unadulterated, untainted by legalism on the one hand or license on the other. Now, what we want the next few weeks to be is is a time that's really concrete and a time that's really practically helpful as we consider the marks or, or the means of revival. So, we want to be awake to God. We want to be alive to God. We want to be animated by His grace. Great! What next? What next? What is it that actually brings revival to our hearts? How does it actually take place? And we want to start these practical reflections by opening up the Old Testament, the very middle of our Bibles, to make sure that we're not missing the thing that's right in front of us. (laughs) To make sure we're not sitting at God's green light looking at our phones. A bit of context first, Isaiah could be thought of as as the heavyweight champion of Old Testament prophets. He has been tasked to bring God's word to God's people, uh, to reveal to them God's will for their salvation. And this he does in the 25,000 word dissertation we find in the middle of our Bibles. Now Isaiah is, uh, is a great prophet, but he does not have a great congregation. A great prophet, but he doesn't have a great congregation. He spoke some 700 years before Jesus walked on the earth. And in that day, God's people, the people of Israel, were just, just an absolute disaster. And how often that is as we chart biblical history and even the church today, it's a story of faithfulness, but not of our faithfulness of God's faithfulness to an unfaithful people. It's why we celebrate this thing called grace. But Isaiah is writing in a time of of spiritual sleepiness, both individually and corporately. So if we think of of last week, Israel is a time where, where, where Miss License is queen. 
Moral absolutes have completely disappeared. Individual character and integrity have evaporated. Public morality has collapsed. But of course, we now know wherever Miss License goes, you're sure to find Mr. Legalism as well. And he is indeed king to her queen. The people, though they aren't following the Lord, think themselves religious. They think that by following the ceremony and the sacrifice and by fasting and so on, it will somehow force the Lord to bless them. As if our God is a God that can ever be put in our debt. The one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills never owes us anything. The prophet Isaiah remains faithful, but the people steadfastly refuse to listen to him. And so throughout the book, they edge nearer and nearer to disaster. God, for his part, responds to sin the way that he always responds to sin. First, in his perfect character, he is appalled and and devastated by it. Our Lord isn't one who just watches from afar, somehow detached from the evil that plays before his eyes. He is appalled by it and devastated by it, that we would do ourselves such harm and cause such brokenness on the earth. Second, in keeping with his perfect justice, he then plans judgment. Judgment for this wickedness, not some reactionary knee-jerk vengeance, but a settled disposition, a, a holy reckoning with the evilness that is alive in the land. But of course, in keeping with his perfect grace, he also plans salvation. Whenever the Lord plans justice, he also plans grace, a hiding place from the wrath of God to be found for all those who would look to him. And that takes us to our section in chapter 64. You see, it's part of a prayer for mercy, and in many ways, it's really part of a lament. Look, for example, at verse 15 of chapter 63. We read, Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? He's saying, God, look down at the mess that we've made. Your, you know, your, your goodness can't be seen anywhere in the land, and, and it must look even, even worse from your perspective. Verse 16, you are our Father. You, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. We are meant to be your people and you are meant to be our God. But, verse 19, we have become like those over whom you have never ruled. (laughs) Like those who are not called by your name. We're supposed to be your family, but in reality we're, we're perfect strangers. And what a great summary of sleepy Christians. There's so much promise, so much potential, so much opportunity, and yet, and yet, they're asleep. And that's the context then that takes us to these, these famous verses. And these verses, they're so great to consider as we think about revival together. Did you notice how in each of the verses, verses 1, 2, and 3, the key idea or emphasis is, is God's presence? You see that with me? Verse 1, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your 
presence. Verse 2, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Verse 3, again, you see it there. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down the mountains, quaked at your presence. So do you catch the the sweep of what's happening here? The sweep of what's happening as our our narrative unfolds before us. Isaiah is saying, God, what a mess we're in. Look look at what we've, we've done to ourselves. Look at what we've done to our lives. See how we haven't flourished because we've, we've neglected you. And, and what hope do we have? No hope in ourselves. We're, we're powerless. Our only hope is in your presence with us. Our hope is in your presence with us. And so the prayer comes in verse 1. If you would rend the heavens... If you would take them apart, tear them apart like a curtain, remove the barrier that covers that unseen world so that there is no longer a veil between us and you. And if you would come down, that's what we need. We need your presence. We need this kind of divine intervention. For surely, he says, surely the the scorching reality of your presence with us would wake us up and make us alive. As kindle, he says, as fire kindles brushwood, or as fire causes water to boil. If you rend the heavens and came down, if we saw a glimpse of you, it would change us. It would change us forever. So bring your presence to us, we pray. Now, it's a great prayer, and it certainly makes sense to us, doesn't it? Doesn't it make sense to us? I mean, can you imagine... Imagine there was an earthquake as we're sitting here and the pews begin to rumble and the chandeliers begin to shake and dust begins to fall and God tears open our sanctuary and brings his presence into our midst. You would remember this week. Okay? <laughs> that would not go unnoticed. That would have a powerful impact upon us. Yes, this is a, a prayer that makes all sense in the world to us and yet... It's not our prayer. Why not? Because it's already happened. (laughs) Because it's already happened. We don't ask God to tear open the heavens and come down because he already has. He already has. God promised his presence to the people in Isaiah's day. But we have more than a promise. In the person of Christ, we have the fulfillment of this promise. In the person of Christ, we have the answer to this prayer. God did rend the heavens. He did tear them open like a curtain. He did remove the veil that separates that unseen world so that nothing stands between him and us. And he did come down in the flesh and blood of his son. But we even get to say there's more than that. In the gospel we know, do we not know that God tore open the heavens so that his son could come down? And then he tore open his son so that we can go back up. In the gospel, we are people who are prone to wonder, have encountered the God who is prone to pursue 
God has broken into human history and we are forever changed. Forever changed by his presence with us. So, when we want to be awake, when we want to be alive, when we want to be animated by his grace towards us and we start to reflect upon, well, what is it that brings renewal to our hearts? What is it that brings revival to our souls? And we think about the first mark or means of revival, we need to remember that it's not that God would bring his presence to us. Because he has already done that. For us, it's that we would live in the present awareness of his presence with us. That we might live in that present awareness of his presence with us. That we might see the light's already green. The light's already green. J.I. Packer, commenting on this text, says, The first and fundamental feature in revival is the sense, the awareness, that God has drawn awesomely near in his holiness, mercy, and might. Duncan Campbell, a Scottish theologian, says, I have no hesitation in saying that this awareness of God is the crying need of the church today. This awareness of God is the crying need of the church today. You see, for most of us, for me, perhaps for you as well, our main spiritual problem isn't that we don't understand the gospel intellectually. It isn't that we haven't been able to get our minds around it. It's that very often Jesus isn't real to our minds and to our hearts. And so faith, religion, the church becomes a concept. Orthodox, yes, but dead. And what a danger in Reformed Presbyterian churches. Orthodox, we will normally be pretty sure that we have the right answer. Whether or not we believe that answer is a different matter altogether. A kind of dead orthodoxy that is brought alive only by an awareness of God's presence with us. You see what our text says? It's like a fire that kindles brushwood. His presence sets us alight. It's like fire that that boils the water. His presence makes us hot. When we catch a glimpse of Christ, if if you see Christ truly, if if you know him and experience him in this moment, you have no doubt that he is worth your everything. His beauty is worth your everything. Without hesitation, without doubt, we know that we should give our all for this king because his presence changes everything. How does it change everything for us? How, how does this really make an impact on day-to-day life? Well, Thomas Goodwin, one of the, the Puritans, uh, reflecting on this idea of revival and God's presence, shared this reflection. He, he shared about one day when he was, he was walking down the street and he saw a father and, and son walking ahead of him. And suddenly the two stopped and turned to look at each other, father and son. And the father bent down on one knee to look in his son's eyes. And then quickly and suddenly scooped his son up and kissed him on the cheek. And the son's face was just radiant. And Thomas Goodwin says, the relationship didn't change. But revival happened. The relationship didn't change, but revival happened. It makes me think, yeah, you know these great videos you see of deployed people returning home? 
the few that I've seen, I'm sure you've seen them too, sometimes in a ballpark, you know, and they'll have gathered the, the loved ones and the family, and sometimes they'll even have like a picture of their deployed loved one like up on the big screen so that all the family are kind of standing there looking at this picture, thinking they're being kind of honored for the sacrifice of their family. And then in sneaks the loved one, okay, comes up behind them, they get a tap on the shoulder, they hear the voice, they turn, and then there's just bedlam. <laughs> there's just joyful celebration and, and laughter and tears, and, and it all just breaks out. Why? The relationship didn't change. But revival happens. Presence brings revival. It's the same for us. An awareness of the presence of Christ makes us alive. You see how how practical this is? How very kind of earthy or mundane or, or routine this is? Um, imagine this with me. Tomorrow morning, you wake up and you're kind of coming to and you reach over to turn that alarm off and to shock and terror realize that there's a handcuff on your wrist. Now you're about to freak out when you look up and you see it attached to the other side of the handcuff is Jesus. Right? And Jesus is like, hey, full day, let's go, right? And you're sort of bemused, you know, and you're not sure what to expect, but it turns out that the day really unfolds as normal, but it, everything is completely different. So you get up, and you don't bother stepping on the scale, and you don't really spend much time thinking about what you look like, because it just doesn't seem as important as it did yesterday. And you head down to breakfast and there's, you know, you know that child, the child who takes an eternity to eat a bowl of Cheerios, okay? And you're just not as frustrated as you might normally be. And you jump in the car for, for your commute and instead of like seething rage, <laughs> you feel the joy of being able to spend another minute with him alone. And you make it to the office and you've got that difficult meeting with that difficult colleague and yet the tug on your wrist makes you bold to disagree but kind not to be disagreeable. And you then head out to lunch and you, you, know, you pass the, the homeless man that you see almost every day but somehow the presence of the one who had nowhere to lay his head changes how you feel about him. And then you finish up work and you head off to small group and then when you walk in the room at small group, you're shocked to see that all your friends are handcuffed to Jesus too. And together you laugh about the joy of sharing life with the king. And you help each other figure out how to navigate the awkwardness of being attached to Jesus in a culture that doesn't know him. And you head for home and as you're pulling in, you see your neighbor there and you actually stop and go and have a, have a conversation with them. And you even bring Jesus up because it seems weird not to when he's on your arm. Huh? <laughs> and you head inside and you pay some bills without the usual angst over your financial affairs. And you head to bed. And you don't feel alone and you don't feel anxious and the wheels aren't spinning because he's there. And he says, hey, tomorrow, let's do this again. And until then, I'll keep an eye on you. Now, friends, on one hand, you could say that's a silly imagining. On another hand, it's much closer to reality than we think. It's much closer to reality than we would ever think. You see how, how practical this is? 
His presence with us changes everything. If you lived with this present awareness of his presence with you, it would change everything. And if you know Christ, if you have have received him as your Lord and Savior, then you are united to him and he is with you. And he has promised to be with you when? Always. For how long? Forever. Till the very end of the age. Never alone. Only finding you have Christ by your side. What difference, what difference would that make to you tomorrow? Is it in one of the areas we've, we've spoken about? Is it with some kind of busyness, some kind of loneliness, some kind of fear? Is it with some, some challenge or some opportunity or some, or some risk that he's calling you to take? Is it in some kind of struggle or, or some kind of temptation or some kind of battle with sin? Where do you need to be aware of his presence with you? Tomorrow, why don't you just try this? An experiment of sorts. Get out of bed and imagine you spend the day handcuffed to Jesus. You'll find on one hand that the day unfolds as normal. And yet, everything is different. I have a friend who... um, to sort of work this into his own heart, sets his, his alarm on his phone as his favorite worship song so that the moment he wakes up, he's connected to the reality of the Lord's with him. I've got another friend who'll uh, wear his watch on the wrong hand because uh, that just kind of catches him and it makes him think, oh yeah, why, why did I do that? To remind myself the Lord is near. We have an elder. You ready for this? We have an elder who got tattooed on his wrist, the Lord's. Now, I'm not saying go and get a tattoo. Don't send me emails. I am saying... (laughs) I am saying... A spiritual desire to be aware of the Lord's presence that went as far to get the Lord's inked on his own wrist. That is awesome. That's awesome. And I love it. Another friend who puts a, a sticky note just on the dashboard of his car. You know? to remind himself that here, even here, the Lord is near. Finding physical ways to remind yourself of this spiritual reality, that though your day may unfold as normal, everything can be different because he is is present with you. How would tomorrow be different? What physical thing can you do to remind yourself that he is near? Friends, this morning we celebrate because God rent the heavens and came down in the person of his son and we no longer need to sit at his green light (laughs) but can be aware of his presence with us. What a difference it would make. Let's pray together just now that it will be so. Let's pray. Father, we don't want to miss the thing that's right in front of us. We don't want to miss your presence. We want to be aware. We want to live in the present awareness of your presence with us. We want to see how you have rent the heavens and come down. How you have turned every light green. How, though the routine might be normal, we will never be the same again. Lord, as you broke into history, would you break into our lives and to give us this awareness of your presence with us. We pray in the perfect name of your Son, and look to him. 
Look to that day when you will again rend the heavens and come down on his return. We pray. Amen.